How can you know the best way to live life and make decisions? When you come to a junction in life, what guides you in your decision-making process? When you come across an opportunity that looks a little bit like a cracked door, how do you know if that opportunity is something you should push on or something that you should run from? Some of you are created with an innate sense of adventure. And what that means is that when we start talking about these things, you're thinking, well, why on earth wouldn't you try to do that particular thing? If you're wired that way, the rest of us find you both fun and scary to be around. Others are wired to be more cautious and considered. And so we start talking about opportunities and decision making. And there's this thought that comes to your mind. I'm not so sure about this. I'm not so sure if this is the best idea. And if that's you, the rest of us find you wonderfully consistent. The point is this, no matter how you're wired, all of us come across moments of decisions, junctions in our lives where we have to consider and decide on opportunities. Maybe it's a job opportunity or a business opportunity, a house move, a new relationship, a special relationship, a a change of pace, a change of scenery, a change of life. Nehemiah is a man who lived about 450 years before Jesus, but he, he has written down in the Bible a moment like these ones that we're describing. I would describe it as a cracked door opportunity. It's one that's not super obvious, but it's something that when he comes to it, it seems to be that he knows that this is something that he should push on, an opportunity that he should take. And the question I think that we should be asking is when we face crucially important moments, and these are crucially important moments and decisions, how can we know what to do? What forms, what what informs, sorry, or or drives our decision-making process in these crucially important moments? To answer that, I would say that usually it's a desire, a desire for something or a combination of desires for things maybe for comfort or success or the, uh, the favorable opinion of others. Maybe it's for gain, financial or other, or for happiness or pleasure. But where does God fit into all of that? That's a really good question and one that I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we look at Nehemiah. Where does God fit in our decision-making process? Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Nehemiah with me. And we can just start out in chapter 1. We'll be looking at 1 and 2 today. But as we do that, as you turn there, I want to just make sure that we're on the same page about who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah is a Jew living in exile. And what that means is that he and his people have been taken from their land and they're now living in a foreign land. And the fact is that this uh, exile actually happened 140 years before this moment. So we've got to believe that all that Nehemiah has known is being an exile. Although some of the people he will have known will have moved back to Jerusalem about 90 years earlier. But for whatever reason, again, Nehemiah is still living in exile. He has a good job and an important job. His job is being the cupbearer to the most powerful person at that time. A guy named Artaxerxes. By the way, if you're looking for a good boy's name, maybe you should try that one. It's got two X's in it. What happens is that he hears a report in Nehemiah 1, which we looked at last week, that tells him the state of Jerusalem, the place that his ancestors are from. And it says, hey, the walls are broken down and the gates are burned. And when he hears this news, there's no way of describing his reaction other than saying it breaks him. Listen to what, how he responds in verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, as soon as I heard these words, the report, 
I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's broken. And as you read through the next part of the passage, what we see is that he starts to pray and to fast and to entreat God and say, God, you say, you told us that if we seek you earnestly, that you will restore our fortunes, that you will bring us back even from a foreign land to be in Jerusalem again. And so he starts to entreat God and ask for that to happen. Now we're going to read and pick up the story right there after he's prayed this prayer. We're not sure exactly when this happens, but sometime soon afterward, in the next following weeks and months, it says, In the month of Nisan, this is chapter 2, verse 1, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when, the wine, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, if you read on the next part of this passage, Nehemiah asks for letters to be written for him, giving him safe passage to Jerusalem and giving him supplies for the rebuilding project. And then it ends in verse 8, the second part of verse 8. It says this, And the king granted me what I had asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Did you see the cracked door moment? The king notices Nehemiah's sadness. Now this is in and of itself a pretty incredible thing. This is the most powerful man in the world asking his servant, Hey, why are you sad? He actually asks about it and Nehemiah is like, okay, is this an opportunity that God's giving me? He pushes on the door a little bit rather than just being like, hey, yeah, I got some bad news from home, which wouldn't have been a lie. He tells the king what's going on. He reveals the cause of his sadness. Now, what happens then is the king actually opens the door a little bit further. He says, well, what are you requesting? And this is the crucial moment. This is where Nehemiah offers up this quick prayer because he either pushes on this door at this moment or he walks away and says, oh, it's all good. You know, your majesty, I'm not, I'm not too worried. It's, it's okay. But he doesn't do that. He jumps in in faith. Now, I just want to take a quick pause here to make a note. And that is to say this message today is not a message saying that every cracked door is an opportunity that you and I should seize by faith. There are cracked doors and opportunities that we should absolutely run from. I'll give you an example. Maybe you're married and and there's a, a person of the opposite sex who is working in an office near and with you and they start to show interest in you. That's not something that you should pursue. Some cracked doors are not good doors. And I guess I'm saying this because I want you to see making decisions, navigating life is not easy. And this is why we need help. We need God's help in living life and making decisions. 
And, and what Nehemiah gives us is an excellent example of what it looks like to live life and make decisions. And so what I want to do is just make a couple of observations, three observations here from the life of Nehemiah in this situation. The first is this, like Nehemiah, we must understand who God is and who we are. This is the starting point of living life and making decisions. You see, making decisions when you are secular, that means without God, and making decisions when you are a follower of God are two completely different things. They're different paradigms. Someone who dismisses that God is real typically will make decisions based on the things we listed out earlier. Those desires for comfort, success, favorable opinion of others, gain, happiness, uh, pleasure. And that's probably not an exhaustive list. But what's interesting to note is if, if you don't believe in God and those are the things that inform your decision, functionally, those things are your God. You may say, I don't believe in God, but if you're looking for success and that's what's driving all your decisions, success is your God. Now, for any of us who know and profess God, decision-making should look very different. It's a little bit like putting on a pair of glasses. And what I mean by that is before we put on those glasses, there's like decisions in front of us and it's all blurry. We can't exactly tell. There's all these desires and things. We're just not sure. But when we profess and know God, it's like putting on these glasses and now we look at every decision, every moment in our life through this lens of God and wanting to honor Him and live for Him. It changes everything. It clarifies everything. Sadly, there are people who call themselves Christians, but in this regard function, this regard of decision making and living life, function like atheists. Their decisions and in fact their lives are not lived for God. But Nehemiah shows us a better way. He shows us what it looks like to live completely surrendered to God. As we read through his life, we see this. It's unavoidable seeing this in chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1, verse 4, we saw where he's praying and he's fasting. He's really earnestly seeking God. He's saying, God, I don't even want to eat food because I want to get an answer from you in this. We also see just even in the moment where he's talking with the king, he shoots up this quick prayer. He's like, hey, there's an opportunity in front of me. God, I need your help. Verse 4, I love that, where he's like, um, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. It's like just seamlessly that just happened. And then verse 8, it says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Again, Nehemiah is acknowledging that God is in and a part of everything that's going on in his life. Do you know who God is? Do you know who you are in light of who God is? You see, this is so vitally important if we are to live life the way we are intended and created to. The second thought here is this. Like Nehemiah, we must pray. When it comes to living life and making decisions, we've got to pray. I don't think I need to actually say much more about this point because it's blindingly obvious that Nehemiah's life and his decisions are bathed in prayer. There's long intercessory prayers where he's fasting and he's praying with earnestness. And it's for days, he describes. And then there's also these quick fire prayers like we just talked about. Are our prayers like that? Are our prayers from the heart? Are they, are they passionate? Are they honest? Are they varied like Nehemiah's? 
we must know that not only, yes, there's a call to prayer, but there's a call for us to know and understand that God hears and delights to answer prayers. The third thing that I point out here is this. Like Nehemiah, we must be ready and willing to act. Nehemiah didn't just know God and pray. He didn't just say, okay, that's enough for me. No, he was expectant and willing to take personal responsibility. You see, when, the ne- when Nehemiah is in front of the king and the king asks this question, hey, what are you asking? He sees that as God providing an open door. And because of that, that's because he's expectant. He's expecting that God's going to answer his prayer. And so when he pushes on that door, he doesn't just push on the door and look for an easy answer. I mean, he could have been like, hey, King, would you mind just sending some money and some builders down to Jerusalem? That'd be great. Now he takes personal responsibility for things. Look at verse five with me. He says in verse five, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I want to ask you to take a pause and to consider this. We need to acknowledge this thing together. And that is that even with the best of intentions, we struggle to do all these things that we've just been talking about. All these things that are given to us as an example here by Nehemiah. We struggle to submit. All of us struggle to submit our lives to God. Whether you're a Christian or not, we all struggle in that. And to make decisions based not on our selfish desires, but on what God would want for us. That's a struggle for all of us. For Christians, it's a struggle to pray in all things and to be surrendered to God in all things in prayer. We also struggle to be ready and willing to act, to take personal responsibility. The point I'm making is this. Nehemiah shows us a beautiful example of how we should live for God. But we struggle and ultimately fail to do this. He gives us the example, but we fail to do it. It's a little bit like us having uh, Usain Bolt and come and coach us in how to run. We may work with him. By the way, Usain Bolt's the fastest runner in the world. And, and he may come and work with us. And over time, we may improve our fitness or even our technique. But the truth is, we're going to fall short of running like Usain Bolt. And I'm really wanting us to just in this moment feel together collectively the disappointment of this realization of saying, okay, here's what God calls us to do, but we actually struggle to do that. Because I think as we think on this, it leads us to another question. If we're called to live for God, but we fall short, what should we do? And to answer that question, I want to ask you to think of this story that we've just read in Nehemiah in a different light. We've looked at this story of Nehemiah, and it's a story, if I really make it very basic, it's a story of a man who took responsibility for his people, and sought through personal expense to obtain their favor before the king. Now, does that, as you just kind of step back and think about the outline of the story, does that remind you of anything? It should remind you of what this whole, this whole book is about. 
It should remind you of Jesus. You see, about 450 years after these events happened, God sent Jesus, his son, a man, the God-man. He sent a man, Jesus, who took responsibility for his people, all people, all of his creation, and sought through great expense the shedding of his blood on the cross for all of us to obtain our favor before not just an earthly king, but before the king of kings, God, the creator of all. You see, this story casts a shadow towards the cross. It casts a shadow towards Jesus. And so rather than reading Nehemiah 2 and seeing a list of ways that you should live, we need to first and foremost see that this is about Jesus. And know today the reality of who this Jesus is, his saving work. You see, as you know the saving work of Jesus, you become free from performing and trying to perform to impress God. It frees us from the weight of trying to get everything right even our decision-making, because the truth is you will ruin things in life. You will make poor decisions. But if you're in Christ, you are also loved by God, not because of how well you follow him and how well you make decisions. You are loved by God because of Jesus. And there's nothing that you can do to add to that. All that we can do is consider if God has done all that for me, how should I live? And as we ask that question, it actually brings us full circle, the answer, because from a place of being loved by God and being in right standing with him, we can then follow the path and the example of Nehemiah. You see, we don't follow Nehemiah's example to try and impress God. God has already been impressed by Jesus on our behalf. We follow Nehemiah's example because of the love and grace that we have already received. It's like the words of the old hymn written by Isaac Watts that says, Love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, and all. It doesn't say, hey, I give my soul, my life, and all so that I can have that love amazing. It says I already have that love amazing so that I now give my soul, my life, my all. If I could sum all that I'm trying to say, it's this. Christ's good work for us compels us to look beyond our own selfish priorities and to participate in the good work that God has for us. Why do I use that phrase, good work? Well, the work that God has for us is good, but I also use it because that's a phrase that we actually find in the next part of the story. You see, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he starts to make a plan of what he's going to do. He he informs the locals, the Jews there of of his plan. And in verse 18 of chapter 2, they respond and and they say to each other, let us rise up and build. And then it goes on and says something that I think is so beautiful in that verse. It says, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. What is the good work that God is calling you to? I want to encourage you today to be strengthened in Jesus 
and led by his spirit who, if you are a Christian, he is the counselor who indwells you and guides you. Be strengthened by Jesus, led by his spirit to do the good work that God has placed in front of you. I want to close by reading you a passage from Ephesians in chapter 2. And it says this in verse 10. For we, speaking to Christians, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.